You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, I wonder where you will spend Christmas this year. How often have you been asked that? I've been asked that dozens of times in the, in the last week. Today's passage invites us home for Christmas. The title, of course, is Tempted, and I was tempted to have the timpani player stay up here just because it seemed like a good instrument to go with a sermon on Tempted. But really, the point of the sermon is coming home. The temptation we have at this time of year, at any time in our life, to fail to come home to who God is and everything God has invited us to be and to know of him. And our passage today that we're looking at summarizes this entire Advent series that we've been in, really. It returns us to the question that George posed in week one of Advent. Who is Jesus? It also returns us to the location that we saw in the second week when we looked at Psalm 2 and the heavenly throne room. In this passage, we're coming before the throne of grace. It also returns us to George's sermon of just last week, where we are reminded of Jesus' full humanity in our weakness and in our shame. And then it goes one step further. It beckons us, it invites us, it entreats us to enter confidently before the throne of grace to come home. Jesus Christ made his home on earth with us so that we could be at home with God the Father. Now, just before we read this passage, let me give you just a quick key into a term that we're going to read twice about Jesus born in Bethlehem. We've referred to him in this sermon series as son of David, as the good shepherd, as, as the king. And this is a passage that refers to Jesus as chief priest. And here's what that means. It's very simple. It says, he's the last line of high priests. It means that Jesus, when he stands in the presence of God for all of us, Jesus stands in our stead, in our place, like an advocate, like an ambassador. And he says to God, when you see me, you see the entire human family, Jesus who is fully human. I am their success and their failure. I am their holiness and their sin. And then when Jesus turns back to us, he says to us, when you see me, you see God. I am God's rebuke and God's forgiveness. I am God's holiness and God's loving kindness. So let's read and listen to this passage together. And as we read, listen especially to the last verse. We're going to read Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. It's on page 472 of your black Bibles. And before you stand, as you stand, I want you to remember that we are standing with boldness before the throne of God. Before you arrived here this morning, Jesus was in the presence of God the Father praying for you, advocating for you, speaking for you. So listen to the last verse especially, because this is our invitation as we end the dark season of Advent and turn the calendar towards the dawn of God's salvation. Please stand and read together Hebrews 4, verses 4 through 16, 14 through 16, pardon me, it's on page 973. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Reading together, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your presence with us in word and in spirit. I pray that the words in my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will receive you in your fullness. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So this seems like a good Sunday to keep things simple. Because we're going to blink and it's Christmas Eve, blink and it's Christmas Day, blink again, it's the new year, and then there we are, in January. So let me tell you this entire sermon in one sentence. Jesus has walked where we have walked, faced every temptation that we face, so that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness to receive mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. That's it. So now if you need to think about your shopping list and your menu and other stuff, you've got it. (laughs) If you'd like to stay with it, it's a good Sunday to reflect on this invitation. In other words, we're invited home to the presence of God and to God's grace. And, 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 And the grace is the gift of Christmas. The gift of Christmas is this mercy and grace to help us in a time of need. And who issues this invitation? It's Jesus. Jesus who has walked where we have walked. Fully God and fully human, as George told us in week one of this sermon series, the one who walked in our moccasins. As you, as Randy spoke about, as you saw, that the, we have youth joining the church this evening at the 5 p.m. service. And Tuesday at session, we had the opportunity, those of us there. The session, by the way, are the, the pastors, the staff, and, and elected elders of the church. It's a leadership, prayerful, discerning body of this congregation. And what happens is, when the youth are joining the church, they came to have dinner with us. Sitting there around the table, there were two, two of the youth who were joining that were at the table, and we we're asking them questions. And they told us about this book that they read in this class that Randy led. And this book is called Jesus with Dirty Feet. I would, I would highly recommend it. It's a great book. And in one place in this book, the author writes, Jesus walked. Jesus was a man with dirty feet. He spent most of those three years walking around with people. He invited folks to become his intimate followers As Jesus led his 12 closest followers, they would walk along the dirt roads together. They went to parties together. They ate meals together. They worked together. Jesus walked as a human among humans, brushed elbows with politicians and outcasts, went to parties with sinners and criminals, and embraced as his own family those he met on the street Jesus floated on no pristine clouds. Jesus was no aloof elitist. Jesus was no odd hermit. He preferred the world of dirt and friends and handshakes. He embraced this relational life on earth more passionately than anyone ever had. 
End of quote. He preferred the world of dirt and friends and handshakes. Fully God and fully human together. See, Jesus isn't some sort of divine human hybrid. At every moment, Jesus was entirely human. Dirty feet. And entirely God. And since he was human, there is something very important about who he is that we have not discussed yet this Advent. It shows up in our text. Jesus walked where we walked and faced every temptation, every test that we face. Now, really, fully God, fully human at this point isn't somebody out there thinking to themselves, seriously? You think that uh, he faced our temptations like God is actually going to sin? I mean, doesn't that seem like the deck is sort of stacked in his favor? Because if you're fully God, even if you're in a human body, are you really going to sin? I remember when I was a kid, we'd watch these uh, TV shows, these like cop and detective shows. And I don't know if this storyline shows up so often now. It seemed to show up always in the 80s and 90s, like every fourth story. The, the really good cops, these great guys, are after a really bad person. Someone's had a hit and run. Someone's kidnapped someone. Someone has killed someone. Someone's been drugging, smug, drug smuggling. Or drugging. That works. Put it together. Um... <laughs> And the really good cops just close in on them, and the person is a diplomat from another country. They have diplomatic immunity. You can't prosecute them. So frustrated as a kid. That's so unjust. Isn't that how it feels a little bit, though, when, you know, Jesus, who's fully God, comes down here as an ambassador, that he kind of has diplomatic immunity from sin? So, yeah, he's fully God in human flesh, but come on, really? Like, sin is ever going to prosecute him? How does this work? Well, I've been reflecting on that, and especially in this season. You know what I've heard several times this week in particular? At the same session meeting with these youth, several conversations, um, even just, just out in, the, in like Starbucks. People talking about how this can be a very lonely season. It's a season that's profoundly lonely for many people. And thinking about temptation, it struck me. There's several angles you can think about when it comes to temptation. But the one that struck me this week is how temptation moves us toward isolation. Do you notice this? No one is the essential word in just about any temptation. No one will know. No one will see. No one's going to care. Or no one does care. No one understands. No one understands what you're going through. Nobody understands the situation you're in. Nobody understands why you need to do this. Nobody understands that if you don't do this, what will actually happen in your company or your family or your life? No one will find out. No one will get hurt. No one, no one, no one. Profoundly isolating. It sounds like freedom, but once you go there, what does the same voice say to you? Oh, no one can know about this. No one better find out about this. You can't let anyone see this. You won't be loved. No one is going to understand why you did this. No one's going to care why you did it. See, this is the truth that temptation will never let you in on. Giving in to temptation is the loneliest choice in the world. Profoundly isolating. Mother Teresa was asked at one point what the greatest pain in all the world was. This is a woman who lived in the midst of abject poverty among the dying. She saw so much injustice, so much of the the results, the wages of sin, if you will. 
And you know what her answer was to the greatest pain in the world? Loneliness. See, the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life. And this is certainly true. And I also wonder if while we are still alive, that loneliness is that sort of living death and isolation being cut off. Now, you can tell me that we've progressed as human beings, leaving the old superstitions and fetters of religion behind as a society. You can tell me that the things we call sin should not be called sin anymore. We're just making people feel guilty. You can tell me that most of the temptations we call temptations just shouldn't even be labeled that anymore. And I would believe you were it not for the epidemic of loneliness and depression in our Western society. The Weepies, an alt-folk band that I love, husband-wife duo from California, have this song. It's called Nobody Knows Me at All. I went to hear them playing at the Tractor Tavern one time, a nice diesel place to hear music over in Ballard. So this song comes up. It's never been one of my particular favorite. They have other songs I just love. This song comes up. Nobody knows me at all. The crowd went wild, loving this song. I've listened to that song so often since then. I hadn't paid much attention to it. And I realized I was really out of touch with how isolated so many people feel and are living. Advent, Christmas especially, as I mentioned, can be a time that just provokes loneliness. I remember I was, I was talking to a friend one time complaining about being single at Christmas because, come on, it just rubs it in at this time of year, right? Every movie, every song, every kiss belongs to Kay, whatever that is. <laughs> it's just, why do we even do this? I don't even watch television at this time of year. And I'm saying this to a friend. You know, it's such a lonely, lonely time of year to be single. And, and, and he said, yeah, that's true. He looks at me and he goes, but... Imagine loneliness in a marriage. Trust me, it's worse. Another friend this week who's a doctor at the University of Washington Medical Center, one of our elders, was speaking about the loneliness of those who are ill and sick. There's the loneliness of dislocation, of being far away from family and from a place called home. See, the Christmas season seems to exaggerate loneliness. As wonderfully surrounded as we are, any lack in our relationships, any lack at all will be exacerbated. And reflecting on loneliness and temptation this way, reading Jesus' story and how, and how this claims that Jesus was constantly tempted just as we are, I've come to believe that Jesus was actually tempted with greater intensity. Because can you imagine the loneliness of walking in his shoes? As someone fully human, which means constantly tempted to pull away from this God, God the Father, whom Jesus has been in intimate, deep, loving relationship his whole life, and everything in who Jesus is and what he is, is pulling away from that God and that intimacy every moment that Jesus is alive, and he has to resist it. Do you remember in the wilderness how, how Satan tempted Jesus? I know this is more kind of a Lent text, but, but just reflect on it for just a moment. This temptation to being independent. You know, Jesus was hungry 40 days, 40 nights. He hadn't eaten. And what does Satan say? Turn some stones to bread. No one will know. No one will care. No one will blame you. You're hungry. Seriously, you call yourself the Son of God? No one's going to know that. You you need to jump off the temple or something. No one's going to recognize who you are. No one's going to recognize that God is on your side and God is promoting you and that you are fully God unless you do something spectacular. No one's going to get it. You need to take an action here. Bow down and worship me. No one has to be any the wiser. 
See, temptation is relentless, but it's never creative. Shepherds and pregnant virgins and, and wise men and stars, that's creative. Temptation's not creative. Satan's been using the same script for ages, always takes you in the same direction, pulling away from God, depending on yourself, pulling away from others to protect or provide for yourself. And it was the exact same for Jesus. Every moment, tempted in every way that we are. And why would he do this? Why would he face this daily temptation to pull away from God, to pull away from others, and without sin? Why would he do this on our behalf? Jesus walked where we walked. He's been tempted in every way like we've been tempted so that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is Jesus with dirty feet. There was another wonderful moment in this conversation at the table with these youth. They talked about what what really struck them in this book, Jesus with Dirty Feet, was the writing on repentance. That repentance wasn't, you know, sitting in the corner and feeling sad and, and lonely and guilty about the sin that had just happened. Repentance was getting up and moving back towards God. And one of them said that according to this book, and I think this is brilliant, the opposite of repentance is pretending. The opposite of repentance is pretending that we aren't even tempted. See, the problem is, if we're a whole community that views Jesus as pretty much having diplomatic immunity and this temptation thing wasn't really real, then the only way we know how to talk about grace is as diplomatic immunity and something that kicks in after you've sinned. We have no language for talking about the grace that meets us before we sin. The grace that meets us at the moment of temptation. And let's be honest, as Presbyterians, we're great on grace after we've sinned, and we need to continue to be great there. But we can also grow and learn on grace before we sin. Grace at the moment of temptation, because see, too many of us were raised to think, it's your job to stay out of sin, it's God's job to rescue you once you get there. No, it's our job as a community to keep each other out of sin. Did you hear this in the text? We come before the throne of grace to get help when we need it. Do you remember a story when a man came to Jesus for help and Jesus called him to faith and the man said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's his gift of grace. See, loneliness at this time of year in particular and any time is the invitation and good news, it seems to me, to receive grace from the one who knows how to help us at our points of isolation and temptation. That Jesus meets us as fully God after we've sinned with forgiveness and also fully human before we go there when we're tempted. Jesus made his home with us so that we can make our home with God to receive grace in all of life. And worship, this gathering of weak and tempted people with the God who took on weak and tempted human flesh, is where we are strengthened to save us from the loneliness and the destruction of following in the ways of sin. Praying, living in community, stopping pretending, talking about where we need accountability and help, reading scripture passages, in all of these ways, Jesus meets us at the throne of grace. It's our job to encourage and strengthen each other. So let's enter that throne of grace now, because you know the good news. The good news is... That what loneliness can do and does do, and the ironic good news of what sin does do, is it clears out this crazy space where then Jesus can be born, just as he was in the manger. 
We're going to take our reflection time. The picture that you'll see is, is Rembrandt, the adoration of the shepherds. We're going to take a slightly longer amount of time so that we have a chance to pray and come before the throne of grace and ask Jesus to make a home with us. We can make a home with him. You'll notice that we have candles set up here, and this is sort of ridiculously inefficient uh, and, and, a, and, and possibly a silly idea for a room full of a thousand people. But there's something about being able to step forward and light a candle because we've been a long ways from our God for a very long time and we want to come home. Or to light a candle because there's someone we've loved and we've lost and we want to entrust them and us to the Lord. Or to light a candle because we're not going to pretend anymore that we're doing all right in our places of loneliness or temptation. And we want to remember that we've been received. The Bible says we rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve. Not all of us are going to make it down here to light a candle, but you can let others light on your behalf. And for those of you in the balcony, you have time. You don't have to rush to walk down and light a candle if you'd like to. Janie and I will light one candle for each box from our Advent wreath, and then all the other candles can be lit right from the box. And for all of us, let's pray and be received in the front of the throne of grace before we rush into Christmas Eve and Christmas and the New Year. Remember that the stable and the manger is the perfect place to remind us that God comes to us first. As Morton Kelsey writes, I myself am very glad that the divine child was born in a stable, because my soul is very much like a stable, filled with strange, unsatisfied longing, with guilt and animal-like impulses, tormented by anxiety and adequacy and pain, if the Holy One could be born in such a place, the One can be born in me also. I am not excluded. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that not a single one of us in this room is excluded. Thank you that you are God with us. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us, we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.